Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians 2, and we'll be looking at a very famous passage in that chapter. We want everybody to be able to follow along as we do. So these guys have some Bibles as they make their way to the back. If you need one, then get their attention and they'll give you one of those that's marked at Philippians chapter 2 for you. Philippians 2. Well, if we're honest in our evaluation of ourselves, then it's natural for us to sometimes wonder, how can God use me with all of my faults and my foolishness and my sin? There are many passages of Scripture that can help when we understandably feel that way. But perhaps there's none better than those that deal with Jesus' interaction with his first followers, the apostles. As you look at what they felt and said and did, you'll often see yourself as I see myself in them. They are very ordinary men whom God used to do extraordinary things. Even after they had been with Jesus for nearly three years, hearing him up close and watching his perfect life provide a model for them, they still displayed a pettiness and a competitiveness that was opposite what they had heard and seen in Jesus. One of those apostles, Matthew, reports that toward the end of Jesus' ministry, an ugly, competitive spirit developed among the apostles. When James and John and their mother attempted to get Jesus to promise them privileged thrones in his kingdom. Matthew says, when the ten heard about what James and John and their mother had done, they were indignant with the two brothers. No doubt, harsh words and angry gestures were exchanged among the twelve. Tempers flared. And so the Bible says, Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Pastor Kent Hughes says, it would seem that none could miss the point. However, as we all know, Hearing the truth and making it part of our lives are not the same thing, even when we are devoted to Christ. Several days later, when the apostles arrived in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, they were still going at it. Peter and John had secured a room as Jesus had directed them, but they had neglected to make arrangements for foot washing. And as the apostles wandered in, no one would condescend to perform the humble task. Jesus' teaching only a few days earlier, as direct as it was, had apparently had no effect. No one would volunteer for this lowly task. How very human they were. How much like us. As John's gospel relates the account of what happened behind closed doors, the disciples were at the table with their dirty feet stretched out. The meal was in process, but the conversation was strained because of the tension. And then they became aware that the teacher had risen from supper and was standing apart from them, 
As they watched, he removed his outer garment. And next he took a towel and he wrapped it around his body. And then he poured water into a basin and he began slowly to move around the circle, watching, washing each disciple's outstretched feet, wiping them with the towel with which he was wrapped. It was a breathtaking deed. Jewish law taught that no Hebrew, even a slave, could be commanded to wash feet. Yet Jesus did it in the most humble way possible, clothed in a servant's towel. In the breathless silence of that upper room, the apostles heard the trickle of water as it was poured. The friction of the towel as their feet were wiped off. The sound of the master breathing as he moved from one to another. The incarnate Son, God Himself, had dressed like a servant and washed the feet of His prideful, arrogant creatures. And then He said this, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. In saying this, Jesus used the ancient logic, if it's true for the greater, that is me, then it must be true for the lesser, that is you. Now, that's always a powerful argument, but coming from him, it should be infinitely compelling. And yet so often divine logic and compulsion stall in our hearts because we are so like those men at Jesus' table. In the words of poet Robert Raines, I am like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me. How they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own sake. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors. Your direction for my schemes. Your power for my projects. Your sanction for my ambitions. Your blank checks for whatever I want. I am like James and John. Now, given our natural bent to be self-centered, it has always been difficult for all of us to live out Jesus' command. Or, as Paul states, as we saw last week, in chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 3 and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Now, as we've progressed in our series in the book of Philippians, we've seen that they were facing opposition from outside the church, and they were also beginning to see some dissension inside the church. And their ability to withstand opponents outside the church is going to be related to their ability to eliminate that dissension that they have inside the church. Moses Silva said this, If the opposition being experienced by the Philippians calls for steadfastness, as we saw chapter 1 says, and if steadfastness is impossible without spiritual unity, as chapter 1 also teaches, and if unity can come about only from an attitude of humility, as we saw last week and we just read from verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2, 
then surely Paul must reinforce the critical importance of humility in the heart of believers. And so that's what Paul commences to do now in Philippians chapter 2. He does it by using the most powerful example of all, the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an example that we're all called to follow. As we see in many passages in Scripture, that we are called to follow the example of the Lord Jesus in his humility in the service of others. First John says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Jesus himself said, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. The Bible tells us in Romans 15, we ought not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good. Now, why is that? Because of the example of Christ, because it goes on to say, for even Christ did not please himself. The Apostle Paul said, this is the life I attempt to live. And then he tells us why he says, I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. And he says right after that, then follow my example. But whose example is he following? That of Christ. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's what Philippians chapter two, then is calling us to do. Follow the example of Christ. If we are going to fulfill what we saw last week in verses three and four of chapter two. So verse five says this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In a book called The Adequate Man, Paul in Philippians, Paul Reese says this, don't forget Christ, Paul, that in all this wide universe and in all the dim reaches of history, there has never been such a demonstration of self-effacing humility as when the Son of God in sheer grace descended to this errant planet. Remember that never, never in a million eons would he have done it if he were the kind of deity who looks only to his own interests and closes his eyes to the interests of others. You must remember, my brothers and sisters, that through your union with him in living redemptive experience, this principle and passion by which he was moved must become the principle and passion by which we are moved. We're going to see that today from Philippians chapter 2. Let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, here we are on another Lord's Day with your word open in front of us. With hearts that I trust are ready to be filled with your truth, with minds that are alert to its teaching. Lord, we need your aid every moment of every day, and we ask your aid in these moments. Help us, Lord, to focus and rivet our attention upon the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that we who are called by his name 
will live day by day more as he lived and think day by day more as he thought. And thereby, may we bring glory to you and may we fulfill the mission to which you have called us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, each week we have in your program inserted an outline for the message. And if you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out now so that you can take a look at what we'll be seeing in this passage. The first point of which is this. Christians think like Christ. Christians think like Christ. Verse 5 of Philippians 2 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. If you're to have the requisite humility that's necessary to Christian relationships, then we're going to need to think accurately about ourselves and about others. And Jesus' example teaches us what he thought about both. And so I say in the outline, we think like Christ, that is, we think as he thought of himself. We think as he thought of himself. Verse 6, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Who, being in very nature God, it says. The Bible is clear that the one who has given us the supreme example of humility is not just a man, but is in fact God himself come as man. The Bible teaches the deity of Jesus Christ, the fact that he is fully God In a number of places, I'll give you a few. Colossians chapter 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Famously, John chapter 1, the very first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in that same chapter, John goes on to say later, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. The writer of Hebrews says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So Jesus Christ, the one who came as man, had already been and continued to be from eternity past and into eternity future and forever fully God. But in eternity past, God the Son decided to do the unthinkable. Given how he thought of himself, given how he viewed himself, he willingly submitted to the needs of others, and he voluntarily determined to come to earth for us. So in verse number 6 of Philippians chapter 2, it's alluding to the way Christ thought of himself, not just when he came to earth, but how he thought of himself before coming to earth, when, as God, he made the decision to do that very thing who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used only for his own advantage. And so in eternity past, as Father, Son, and Spirit determined the plan for all history to include God the Son coming to live and die and to redeem a people for himself. God the Son did not consider equality with God something to be used only for his own advantage. And made the decision then voluntarily to come and do what we celebrate in this season. His example is that because 
He did not use what was rightfully his for his own advantage only. He was willing to leave his exalted position for us. And that resulted in what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He left his exalted position. He did that because he thought of himself, not only in terms of himself, but in terms of others and what they need, and then came to meet that need. We too, friends, as God's people, if we belong to him, have an exalted position, the Bible tells us. Now, that exalted position is not as God, of course. But as Christians, we have an exalted position amongst the rest of humanity. Here are just some of the things the Bible says about that exalted position for we as Christians. It says, all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we are called the children of God. That's an exalted position amongst humanity. The Bible tells us your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. It tells us elsewhere, we are Christ's ambassadors. Ephesians chapter 1 says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Romans 8, famously, God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. And one more from 1 Peter You, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We as Christians have this exalted and privileged position because of the work of Christ. Given what Christ was willing to do in light of his position as God, then think about it, friends. What ought we to do for others in light of ours? In order to be moved to action as Christ was, we must see our position not selfishly, but as a privileged position to be used for the benefit of others. But we'll only do that if we view ourselves as he did, Not using the privileges that are ours only for our own advantage. And we'll only do that if we view others as he did. Christians think like Christ. We think of ourselves as he thought of himself. And I say in your outline, we think as he thought of others. Christ in eternity past agreed To be the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. That's what the Bible refers to him as. So before the world was ever created, he agreed to be the lamb who would be slain. The one who would come and die for others. He saw what would be our need. And he agreed to the answer to to be the answer to that need. That's putting their needs, others needs. Above his own. That's doing what is in others' best interest. Now, you've heard that before, haven't you, from me? There's a word for doing what is in the best interest 
of another. That's the word love. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. Jesus Christ showed his love for others in his willingness to do what he did not have to do, but voluntarily agreed to do, leaving his exalted position for the sake of others. And so the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And then those to whom that was written, giving the example of the Lord Jesus, leaving his wealth to become poor for the sake of others, They're exhorted, your plenty will supply what they need, and then their plenty will supply what you need. That is, you need to be willing to give as you have been blessed for the sake of others. And this, of course, applies not just to giving financially, but giving of ourselves more importantly. One commentator has said, but Christians are God's children solely by adoption, not by inherent right. You see, the comparison here, the illustration of the Lord Jesus is, is that if he did this, leaving his exalted position in heaven to come to do what we needed, then we ought to follow that example. And we do have this exalted position as we've seen, but we are God's children solely by adoption, not by inherent right as he is. Every marvelous blessing and privilege that we have is entirely because of divine grace. And it's only ours because of our union with God's only true eternal son, Jesus Christ. And so if God's eternal son humbled himself in such an incomparably sacrificial way, how much more should God's adopted children be determined to live humbly and sacrificially? That's what we're being challenged to do in Philippians chapter 2 by the example of the Lord Jesus. That's what the Philippians were being challenged to do. You're beginning to have this dissension, Paul says to them, beginning to take root in your assembly. That disunity will keep you from being able to be steadfast in the face of opposition from outside and being able to move forward as partners in the gospel as you've been called to do. And so I'm reminding you of the unity that you need to have, a unity that will only happen if you have the humility of Jesus. And you see yourself and you see others as he saw himself and he saw others. Christians are to think like Christ. But I say in your outline as well, Christians are or Christians act like Christ. They think like Christ and they act like Christ. In this famous passage in Philippians 2 Tells us not only how Jesus thought of himself, but then because of how he thought, what he did, how he acted. The passage tells us that he condescended for the benefit of others. And so I say in your outline, we condescend for others. Verse 7. Rather, that is, in contrast to what could have been, verse 6, Considering equality with God, something to solely be used for his own advantage. But rather than doing that, verse 7, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness. 
And when verse 7 says he made himself nothing, it's literally he emptied himself. And so verse 7 has been translated in the past. Rather, he then emptied himself, taking the nature of a servant. But then with that being what the Greek, which your New Testament was originally written in, actually says that he emptied himself, that has then raised the question for many, emptied himself of what? Liberal theologians, that is. Liberals, and I don't mean politically liberal, I mean theologically liberal. Liberals who really don't believe the Bible. And don't believe what it teaches about what we've just seen about the true nature of Jesus Christ, that he is fully God. They said that he emptied himself of his deity. That he uh, was no longer God when he became man. Well, the Bible most definitely teaches in this passage and in others that he who was and is and always will be God did not replace what he was with humanity, but rather added humanity to what he already was. He was God, he continued to be God, and he became the God-man. Fully God, fully human, in one unique person. So they said he emptied himself of his deity. Not true. Conservatives went then in search of some orthodox answer to that question. Emptied himself of what? And many answered it this way for many years. He emptied himself by giving up the independent use of his attributes as as God. But actually that, that phrase, he emptied himself, or in the NIV that you have there, made himself nothing. He really didn't actually empty himself of anything. Here's why I say that. Because in four of the five uses of the Greek word that's translated made himself nothing or emptied himself, In four of the five uses in the New Testament, it's used metaphorically. His emptying or making himself nothing came by way of the two phrases that follow. How did he make himself nothing? Here's how. Verse 7. By taking the very nature of a servant. By being made in human likeness. That is how he emptied himself. That is how he made himself nothing. And so this one who was God in the exalted position of God the Son from all eternity past, who agreed because of his love for others to come and do what they could not do for themselves. This one, while he walked the earth for approximately 30 years and he ministered as he was sent to do, and he came to the night before his mission would see the beginning of its end, the night before he died. He prayed in John 17. And in that prayer, he said this, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. By taking the nature of a servant, he had veiled that that glory. For a temporary period of time. In fact, in Matthew chapter 17, you have the Mount of Transfiguration. You may remember reading that. Where Jesus showed himself and his glory temporarily while he still walked the earth. But he had laid that full expression of his glory aside. By taking the very nature of a servant. By coming as humanity. 
for that temporary period. And he prays that that will be restored. Why did he do it? Again, we're reminded Matthew 20. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He made himself nothing. How? By taking the nature of, of a servant. That word that's translated servant is the word for slave, doulas, a bond slave. He came and for that period of time was willing to be, as it were, a slave for the sake of others. And in doing that, this one who was and continued to be God and still is God added humanity to what he already was. End of verse 7, being made in human likeness. The Bible teaches the full humanity of Jesus in a number of places. Galatians 4 says, When the time, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman. And that phrase, born of a woman, is purposely included in order to emphasize his full humanity. When he came, yes, he was God, but he came as, as man, born of a woman. J.B. Phillips was an English clergyman who produced a translation of the New Testament, and he wrote over 30 books. He wrote a little story called The Angel's Point of View, and that story featured a dialogue between a senior angel and a uh, junior angel. The senior angel was showing his charge, the splendors and glories of the universe. And here's a portion of what they said. The little angel was beginning to be tired and a little bored. He had been shown whirling galaxies and blazing suns, infinite distances and the deathly cold of interstellar space. And to his mind, there seemed to be an awful lot of it all. Finally, he was shown the galaxy of which our planetary system is but a small part. As the two of them drew near to the star, which we call our sun and to its circling planets, the senior angel pointed to a small and rather insignificant sphere turning very slowly on its axis. It looked as dull as a dirty tennis ball to the angel whose mind was filled with the size and glory of what he had seen. I want you to watch that one particularly, said the senior angel, pointing with his finger. Well, it looks very small and rather dirty to me, said the little angel. What's so special about that one? That, replied the senior solemnly, is the visited planet. Visited, said the little one. You don't mean visited by, indeed I do. That ball, which I have no doubt looks to you small and insignificant and not perhaps over clean, has been visited by our young prince of glory. And at these words, he bowed his head reverently. And from there, the junior angel is led through a series of revelations about Christ's incarnation becoming man that leaves him stunned and incredulous. And oh, for us to have fresh eyes and a tender heart as we revisit these astonishing truths, to live our lives in a spiritual springtime of wonder, to be perpetually amazed by the realities of Christ. The exalted one who made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness. S. Lewis Johnson says it's very striking 
that the characteristic feature of our Lord that comes through in his humanity is the feature of his compassion. He's made in human likeness. He's fully man. And how does that humanity show itself in his life on earth? It's mostly featured through his compassion. The one distinguishing feature of the character of the Lord Jesus that's mentioned more than any other feature is the feature of compassion. Did you know that? He was a man of compassion, moved to compassion, the scriptures say often of him. But not only that, he was a man of indignation. No one could get righteously angry as Jesus Christ. And he says, I think it manifests itself in a most clear way when the Lord Jesus stood at the graves grave of his friend Lazarus. We read that when he came to the grave of Lazarus, that he was moved with indignation and troubled within himself. There was a kind of great storm in his soul that broke forth into a shower of sympathy over the event that was happening in the home of his friends Mary, Martha, and now the deceased Lazarus. And the amazing feature of our Lord's compassion and his indignation is that he can be compassionate and he can be indignant even though he knows that in a few hours he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, if there is any expression of the depth of which our Lord entered into our humanity, became fully human, that expresses it beautifully. He stood at the grave of Lazarus and he sobbed. They were wailing and he sobbed with them. Jesus wept, tells us about the reality of his humanity. He was born as we are born. He was fed as we are fed. He grew as we grew. He worked as we worked. He died as we must die. Except his death was the death of atonement in the shedding of his blood. And we must hold his deity, the fact that he is God without doubt, and we must hold his humanity apart from sin as well. And I think also it's striking to realize That when the Lord Jesus stood at the grave of Lazarus and he he wept and he sobbed, we learned that he's not ashamed of holy emotion. He's not ashamed to weep. It's a beautiful expression of his humanity that he wept. And though Lazarus was safe and he was to be raised for the glory of God, the text says Jesus was still indignant. And he was indignant because he stood in the presence of death and he was angry with death itself. He was angry with death because it's the climactic expression of the fact that we are sinners and have fallen under sin's power. That's Jesus in his full humanity. That's Jesus as our example, our model, the illustration of the kind of humility that we are to have for others. How we're to see ourselves And then in turn, how we're to see them. If we're going to condescend, be willing to come down from our exalted position and not use our rights to our own advantage only, but for others, if we're going to condescend, then we must see them with compassion as Jesus did. And we must react to what sin has done to people. When the Apostle Paul visited the city of Athens, Greece, in Acts chapter 17, the Bible tells us that he was, I'm quoting, greatly distressed at what he saw. He was greatly distressed because he saw the city full of idols. James says this, that pure religion that God our Father accepts is this. 
to care for widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Jesus looked at the crowds and he was moved with compassion. Almighty God, become man and moved at the plight of others. Are you moved at the plight of others? How do you see others? Do you see others as Jesus did? Are you distressed as Paul was at the effects of sin on them? If we are, friends, then it will show itself in, first of all, how we think about them and then how we talk about others. I've said several things in the last few weeks of a political nature. I said I'll be done with that. I lied. Just another quick comment. You see, friends, when we talk about people, humanity, in ways that are degrading, in ways that are uncaring, we are not showing the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did not look at people who are less fortunate than us. He would not look at them and say, They made their bed. They have to lie in it. You did it. You get it fixed. No, he condescended to where they are, knowing full well how they got there. We all know it's our fault that we are where we are. We all know that this planet is sinful because we are sinners. And yet those of us who claim to believe that we understand that we are sinners so desperate that God had to come to remedy our sin can still look with no compassion at others who are living in the ravages of the effects of sin. And so, friends, I challenge you as I challenge myself to ask yourself, how do you think about yourself? How do you think about your privileged position? Jesus did not consider his a privileged position as something to be used for only for his own advantage. Rather, he loved others. And so because he saw himself that way, he saw others in a loving way. Made himself nothing. Taking the nature of a slave. Being made in human likeness. Christians are to act like Christ. We're to condescend for others. And then lastly, in your outline, we sacrifice for others. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The Son of God submitted to 30 years approximately of obedience to his parents, and to the ministry that was before him. The true test of humility is obedience. It's impossible to be humble without being obedient. Obedience is the path of humility, obedience to God, obedience to his word. This obedience was a life of obedience to the will of his father, 
and obedience to his earthly authorities. And that life of obedience led to his death. That death also being an expression of obedience. Because he came and he lived for the purpose of dying. And that death was effective because he was actively righteous. During his life, he obeyed. He obeyed his entire life. And because of that, his death was effective and acceptable to God the Father as a sacrifice for others. Now note the words that Paul adds in verse 8. In this passage, the whole passage, verses 5 through 11, which is set off in poetic form, many believe the whole passage was an early Christian hymn. It breaks the meter of the poetry at the end of verse 8. Notice the dash in the text when it says, by becoming obedient to death, dash, even death on a cross. It's as if the writer is writing poetry and suddenly, not caring about the meter of the poetry anymore, he's overcome and he breaks the rhythm by writing this line, even death on a cross. That this full obedience of his life ultimately led to the obedience of dying on the cross. The text literally says, even a cross death. Cicero, the noted statesman from Rome, whose country used crucifixion for execution, said this, let the very name of the cross be far removed, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. Jews knew in their scriptures in the Old Testament that he who is hanged on a cross, on a cross is accursed by God. One commentator said crucifixion is perhaps the most cruel, excruciatingly painful and shameful form of execution ever conceived. It was originally devised by the ancient Persians and Phoenicians and later perfected by the Romans. It was reserved for slaves, the lowest of criminals and enemies of the state. No Roman citizen could be crucified, no matter how egregious the crime. In his book, The Life of, in a, in a book called The Life of Christ, Crucifixion is described as follows. A death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of the horrible and ghastly. Dizziness, cramp, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of intended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all but all stopping just short of the point which would have the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The usual position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. Christ became obedient unto death, even across death. And in man's eyes, the cross was a horrible and shameful thing. But the true horror of the cross was not to be found in what the Bible describes as the hosts of Satan that assailed Christ when he was nailed to that tree. The true horror of the cross is not to be found in the mobs of men and women who scorned him at the foot of that tree. The true horror is to be found in the curse that God laid upon him in the darkness of that day. You see him suspended. Between heaven and earth. And there at shroud of darkness. 
He's drawn across the sky. As he cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was obedient to death. Voluntarily. He chose that death. John chapter 10 says this. Jesus says of himself. I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. There's a great deal of talk about the love of God today. But understand, friends, that the love of God can only be measured by the distance between a throne in heaven and death on an executioner's cross. Jesus Christ was selfless in his thinking. He did not think of equality with God as something to be used only for his advantage. He was willing to change his mode of existence. He was selfless in his actions because he emptied himself and he humbled himself even to the extent of death on a cross. And we are to follow in his example. First John 3 says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. Christians are to think like Christ and act like Christ. And the last point in your outline is that Christians will be exalted like Christ. Now, we're not going to deal with that point. And you think it's because I can't talk. But that's only partly the case. I had a few things to say about that. But the truth is, I planned that ending here. For the most part, anyway. Because next week, Christmas Day, we're going to see the prophecies of Jesus. To be the one who was promised to come. To be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We will see that together next week. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending God the Son, the Lord Jesus, who is our example of loving condescension. We are to walk as he walked, live as he lived. That means thinking as he thought, viewing ourselves as he viewed himself, Viewing others as he did. Lord, may that be true of me. May that be true of us as your people. And thereby, may we show Jesus to an onlooking world. In whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for our closing song.